بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد في الأولين اللهم صل وسلم على سيدنا محمد في الآخرين اللهم صل وسلم على سيدنا محمد في الملأ الأعلى إلى يوم الدين أما بعد الحمد لله وشكر لله We have now reached the Medinan period in the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam and looking back on the Meccan period we see that we spent 49 sessions looking at all of its details and facets when you go to the Sira works that were compiled in our history, whether it is the earliest compilations such as Ibn Ishaq or Ibn Hisham or the latter compilations like Asir al-Halabiyya and others, you find that the Meccan period in all of these Sira works takes up less than one third of all of the material sometimes even less, sometimes a quarter. Does this mean that we're going to be covering the Medinan period in 100 sessions? If we covered the Meccan period in 49, almost 50 sessions, and it amounts to a quarter or one-third of the seerah in most works, does that mean that this class is going to go into 100 sessions, totaling 150 sessions on the seerah? The answer is no. However, there is a significant shift in our manner of describing the events in the Medinan period of the seerah of the Prophet And because of this shift, the way we discuss the seerah in the Medinan period will also differ from how we discuss the Meccan period. We're not just looking at the struggles and sacrifices of Rasulullah but we're also looking at the building of a community. We're also looking at the gradual revelation of the verses that establish Islam as not just a private belief and private piety and devotional practice, but Islam as a political force. So we look at Islam not just as a private religion, but as a society, as a civilization. We look at the development of the Sharia as the ahkam are revealed one by one in the context of a society where those rulings have the force of law, where there is qada where there is conflict with other parties, where there are peace treaties. All of these things are revealed and developed in the, the Medinan period of the seerah of the Prophet And covering the Medinan period, are, we're attempting to cover everything without skimping on the details that are important, and also without going so deep that this becomes uh, 100 sessions or more. So we're endeavoring to finish the Medinan period in approximately 56 to 60 sessions, insha'Allah ta'ala. And that's really the shortest we can do it to do it proper justice, to cover all of the aspects. So today we want to look back a little bit and work our way into the Medinan period by looking at how it began. In our final session on the Meccan period of the Seerah, we described how the people of Medina were anticipating the arrival of the Prophet We discussed those narrations which say how after every Fajr they would go out and look and await the arrival of the Prophet gazing upon the horizon and they would remain out there until it was too hot and then they would go back in. And they continued doing this day in and day out only retreating from the heat of the high noon. 
And then one day, one of the local Jews was outside and he noticed two figures or more approaching from a distance. And he realized that these are the long-awaited uh, arrivals that the Muslims had been looking for. So he shouts out to the people. He says, your good fortune has arrived. Your good fortune has arrived. And as the Muslims heard this, they quickly grabbed their swords and their shields and their spears. And they went out together to receive the Prophet Sallallahu What did they see as they arrived out there? They saw the Prophet Sallallahu and Abu Bakr Siddiq Radiallahu both wearing white garments. Because we mentioned the narration of Talha and how he was coming back from a trip and gave them these white garments. So they went to receive the Prophet and they find him there. Now, where was he exactly when he made this first arrival? We think of Medina today, and we think of this not so large city, but a substantial city today. If you drive, if you go to Medina for ziyara, and you're in a hotel, and you want to go visit Masjid Quba, for instance, it's a short taxi ride. You still feel that you are in the city. But back then, Quba was on the outskirts. And we've mentioned before that when you look at the layout of Masjid al-Nabawi today, if you look at the aerial photographs, for instance, what you're seeing in the aerial photograph, what, looks, what is the masjid today, that was the entirety of the city of Medina in the time of the Prophet How do we know that? We know that because of well, numerous narrations, but one in particular tells us that the Prophet established as his sunnah to lead the Eid prayer on the outskirts of Medina. And the hadith mentions that he led the Eid uh, at a location which is presently located at the masjid. Uh, what's the name of the masjid? Masjid Aisha, I believe. And in the hadith, that is the location of the Eid khutbah. That is right outside of the confines of al-Masjid al-Nabawi. It's a walking distance. So this tells you that the entire city was within the present-day confines of al-Masjid al-Nabawi. That's how much it's expanded. So if that is the outer limit of Medina back then, what about Masjid Quba? It's kind of out of the city, right? Uh, and, and here we are, we are in Monroeville, Pennsylvania. We could say that we would be like Quba is to Medina. Uh, Monroeville is to Pittsburgh what Quba is to Medina. So it's, it's, not, it's out of the city, but it's not so far away that there's no accessibility. So they went out to receive Rasulullah and they find him. And among Banu Amr bin Auf, where he landed, where he alighted from his camel, there was a lot of clamor. People were shouting, people were making takbirs. And the Prophet made his way to them and got off of his camel at the area where Banu Amr bin Auf lived in Quba. And this was, according to a number of reports, on a Monday, the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal, when the Prophet arrived in Quba. There's no unanimous opinion about this. There's some discrepancies and differences of opinion, but many of the Sira works mention it as the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal. What else was on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal? According to the soundest view of the majority, the Jumhur al-Ulama, that was also the, the date of the birth of the Prophet So, according to some reports in the Seerah, the Prophet remained in Quba for four days. You'll find some saying three days, and you'll find some saying uh, between 12 and 14 days. So as we see often with a lot of these historical records, there are some discrepancies. However, if we say he stayed four days, 
It means he stayed Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and then he set out for Medina proper on the morning of Yawmul Jumu'ah, on a Friday, Friday morning. So those who say three days, what they mean are basically the day after he arrived. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday morning isn't counted because he's heading out on that day. Uh, Bukhari, for instance, has the narration which says it was 14 days. So there's some discrepancy. What was he doing at Quba? When he arrived, he established a masjid and he prayed in this masjid. And he was doing this while waiting for the rest of his family to arrive on their hijrah. So we have some narrations about this, what was going on. And we're including this in the Medinan period because although Quba is outside of Medina in this time, it's not so far outside of Medina that it's not really Medina. It's all a part of the, the, the greater area that was under the authority of Rasulullah So it's mentioned by Imam al-Hakim in his Mustadrak collection that when the Prophet first arrived at Quba, he said, Ya Ahla Quba, O people of Quba, bring me stones from that volcanic field. If you've gone to Medina, you see that it's located in a, a, a volcanic area. It used to be volcanic and there's lots of volcanic stones and the volcanic fields where lava had flown uh, way back in history. So he said, bring some stones from the volcanic field. And so the Sahaba present there went and gathered these stones. And he, it says in the narration, he had a short staff, like a small stick. And with this, he marked the Qibla to be used for the construction of this masjid. He marked the Qibla. Then he took one of the stones they brought and he laid the first stone, placing it with his blessed hands, establishing the masjid, and then the rest of the people kept bringing stones and adding on, building it higher and higher. So this was the first thing he did after alighting at uh, Quba. This means that the very first masjid built in, the, in Islam during the uh, life of the Prophet was Masjid Quba. Of course, there were Masajid before this. Al-Masjid Haram precedes this, of course. But we mean in Fi Ahd al-Nabuwa, in the, the age of the Prophet And Masjid al-Quba is referred to in the Quran as well. Does anyone know the verse which mentions it? Aywa, right? Allah mentions this Masjid as the one which was it was based on or established upon the foundation of taqwa from its very first day. And this is revealed in contradistinction to another masjid that was built much later in the seerah, in the 8th or ninth year, what was known as Masjidul Dirar, the Masjid of Harm that was constructed uh, by the hypocrites as a mockery and as a kind of competition to cause fitna and strife. So Allah says about this masjid that it was founded upon taqwa from its very first day. And this is quite obvious because the person who laid the first stone was sahibu taqwa, alladhi qala ala inna taqwa lahahuna, the one who said that taqwa is here. Now Bukhari records that uh, the Prophet will go to Masjid al-Quba later in his life uh, after going to Medina and establishing the Masjid there. He would make it a practice to go to Masjid al-Quba on Saturdays. On Saturdays, he made it a habit to go there either riding on a, a donkey or a camel or going on foot and he would pray two rak'ahs there in the Masjid. And he says in the hadith recorded by Imam Ahmad, whoever sets forth to this masjid, Masjid al-Quba, and prays two rak'ahs in it, will gain the reward equivalent to a, to an umrah. Right. Now here's something a lot of people don't know about Masjid al-Quba. We know exactly 
where the Prophet prayed in Masjid Quba. It is marked still to this day. But most people don't know where that marking is located. When you go into Masjid Quba today, you want to go into the front of the area where maybe the first two or three rows would be found, if I'm not mistaken. And you'll notice there's that concave dome. So the dome of the masjid, you'll see the concave part, the hollowed out part inside the masjid. If you look straight up, you're going to see a large black dot painted into the ceiling. That large black dot stands out. There's no, there's no other black dot. If you notice that black dot and trace your eyes directly down to the ground, that marks the spot where Rasulullah would pray. And a lot of people don't know that. And now that you know, you can go look for it. And you can do as Ibn Umar and other Sahaba would do, would to follow the traces of the athar of the Prophet and to pray exactly where he prayed. Right. So we know he's there for some days three, four, upwards to two weeks, according to Bukhari. And on Friday morning, he departs for Medina proper. Friday morning, he mounts the camel with Abu Bakr as-Siddiq sitting behind him. So this time, it's not Abu Bakr on a camel and him on a separate camel. Now, Abu Bakr is what we call Radifun Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam which is a special category of, 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 of Sahaba who were honored to be riding on the back of an animal with the Prophet The ulama talk about these narrations and they've collected them all together and listed out all of the companions who had that honor of being the radif of the Prophet I think maybe in the Shama'il class we even listed out all of those names because they compiled them into some poetry, they've made a list of them. and You see the attention the ulama give to these special honors. They wanted to trace who were these people who had that honor to ride on the same animal as the Prophet ﷺ, right? Imagine a person who only had a dozen people ride in his car in today's time, and people draw a list of the dozen people who were honored to ride in the passenger seat of this famous person. So what about the most famous? So he leaves on a Friday and he's with Abu Bakr sitting behind him and he sent for some of his distant relatives to accompany him. Who were these distant relatives? They were Banu Najjar, distant relatives on his mother's side, because remember he visited Medina, back then known as Yathrib, as a very young man. And on the way back, we know the incident where his mother Sayyida Amina salam, passed away. So he sends for Banu Najjar, and they arrive carrying their swords. So we have the narration of Jabir, we read before, uh, Bara bin Azib, where you have him received initially upon his arrival, his stay in Quba, and then others who are coming, and they're coming armed, to escort him into Medina proper to give him this reception of honor. Uh, Musa ibn Uqba, he relates in a hadith recorded by Imam al-Bayhaqi, that the Ansar had gathered, and they welcomed him before he rode off from Banu Amr bin Auf. You know, when they say Banu Amr bin Auf, they mean Quba, that area where that clan was living. And they walked around his camel, competing for the honor of holding the reins of his camel in reverence for him. So imagine you have the camel, and he's on the camel, and everyone's competing for getting a chance just to hold the reins, to just walk and escort him into Medina. So as he's making his way in the morning time, going with this group to Medina, is Jumu'ah, the time comes for Jumu'ah and the Prophet ﷺ is now in another area called, known as the area of Banu uh, Salim ibn Auf. So he decides to pray Jumu'ah in the valley where they're located. And at this time there are 100 or so Muslims 
The narration mentions about a hundred Muslims who were with him on this journey between Quba and Medina. So in between, he stops. So the very first congregational Jumu'ah held by the Prophet ﷺ was there in that area. But was that the first Jumu'ah in Islam? No. We learn from the previous narrations in the Meccan period that we have the letters, the correspondence between Mus'ab ibn Umair and the permission to establish the congregational uh, weekly gatherings, what came to be known as the Jumu'ah. But this is the very first Jumu'ah of the Prophet ﷺ, where he's delivering the khutbah to the community. Now, when we get to the first Jumu'ah, we get some very significant lessons. Because we understand a basic principle in Islam. And that is nothing that the Prophet ﷺ does is unimportant or without significance. There's nothing about the Prophet ﷺ that he says or does or purposely omits except that it has, uh, it has wisdom, there's a reason behind it, nothing is accidental, nothing is happenstance or fortuitous. So by him delivering this Jumu'ah khutbah, we know that it's going to be a very powerful message and it's going to be the official first public address delivered to the new Muslim community in this abode of safety. So from the prophetic wisdom is giving things their proper due. That's the meaning of hikmah, right? Hikmah is right? Is putting things in their appropriate places. What this means is the Prophet ﷺ deems certain things important and some things more important and some things less important, even though they're all important on various levels. Uh, we also note that the Prophet ﷺ will say and do things in the privacy of his home or with a small group of people, and he will say and do other things to larger crowds. Each one has its place in legislation, right? So what this means is if you want to see the essence of Islam, the central message of the deen, you want to look at what he is saying to the hundreds and the thousands repeatedly. This doesn't mean that the things he's saying and doing to two or three people or in the privacy of his home are not important. They are important and they are conveyed by his family and by the Sahaba. But what it means is, in the awlawiyat or the priorities given to the ummah, they are given in the setting where everyone has a chance to hear them. And we find numerous instances where he's conveying these timeless universal messages to large crowds. And he says, let the one present convey to the one absent. And in one narration, he says, let the one present convey to the one absent for how many a time the one who hears something understands it better than the one who witnessed it firsthand, who heard it firsthand. Meaning, you may hear something firsthand, but you don't fully grasp it. But you go and convey it to someone who wasn't there, but they have a deeper understanding of what you're conveying than you do, even though you were there, right? How often has it happened that the one who carries beneficial knowledge delivers it to someone who has a better understanding than him? This is the hadith. So we find this significant moment in the history of Islam in the first Jumu'ah khutbah given by the Prophet And one of the ways we understand this khutbah is, is looking at the background. If something's going on in the community, let's say even in today's time, let's say there's a significant event happening around the world. 
and it's on all the news stations and everyone's talking about it. It's really weighty. You might expect that the khatib on that coming Jumu'ah is going to address it. It makes sense because everyone's thinking about it, right? So what's going on prior to the hijrah? What were the ground realities in Medina and the surrounding areas? What do you think he's going to talk about? Right? You can imagine how the Sahaba were anticipating this first Jumu'ah. The very first Jumu'ah khutbah of Rasulullah What is he going to say? So they have the background of Mecca in mind. They're thinking about the Hijrah. There's the environment in Medina. There's the Aus and the Khazraj. There is the new peace they've discovered through embracing Islam and being unified under the leadership of Rasulullah But there's also these tensions, these underlying tensions from long-standing tribal conflict. There's also tensions with other communities in the area, the Jewish communities in particular, between the three tribes. So all of these things are going on. Uh, we, can, we can correctly assume these are going on in their mind. Uh, on the day of the first Jumu'ah of the Prophet ﷺ. So what is he going to talk about? With all of that in mind, the Prophet ﷺ arrives in this area after 12 or so days of arduous journey and after some days remaining in Quba. And now he's about to speak publicly for the very first time. What does he say? Well, we have the full khutbah, alhamdulillah. The full khutbah of Jumu'ah given by Rasulullah is recorded in full by Imam al-Tabari in his work. And in that khutbah, the Prophet began by saying, Alhamdulillah, Ahmaduhu wa asta'inuhu wa astaghfiruhu wa astahdi wa uminu bihi wa la akfuru wa u'adi man yakfuru. He says, all praise is due to Allah. I praise Him and I seek His help and I ask His forgiveness and I seek His guidance. I believe in Him and I do not disbelieve in Him and I take in enmity those who reject Him. It's a very foundational Islam right there. Then he says, وَأَشْهَدُ أَن لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَحْدَهُ لَا شَرِيكَ لَا وَأَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا عَبْدُهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَرْسَلَهُ بِالْهُدَى وَالنُّورِ وَالْمَوْعِظَةِ عَلَى فَتْرَةٍ مِنَ الرُّسُلِ وَقِلَّةٍ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ وَضَلَالَةٍ مِنَ النَّاسِ وَانْقِطَاعٍ مِنَ الزَّمَنِ مِنَ الزَّمَانِ وَدُنُوٍّ مِنَ السَّاعَةِ وَقُرْبٍ وَقُرْبٍ مِنَ الْأَجَلِ مَنْ يُطْعِ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ فَقَدَ رَشَدٍ وَمَنْ يَعْصِيهِمَا فَقَدَ غَوَى وَفَرَّطَ وَضَلَّ ضَلَالًا بَعِيدًا He then says, I bear witness that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah, who is alone and without partner, and I bear witness that Muhammad is his servant and messenger. Isn't it interesting when you hear these hadith? The Prophet ﷺ is also commanded by Allah Ta'ala to utter the shahada. And he's a part of the shahada. The Prophet ﷺ is also ordered to recite the tashahud in salat. And in the tashahud, what do you say? You say, Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala ali Muhammad. So he is commanded to send salawat upon himself. This is profound. He's commanded to bear witness to Muhammad Rasulullah. Right? So he says that. He says, whom he sent with guidance, the true way, and with light, with lofty exhortation and wisdom, at an interval in which there was no messenger. So fetra here means this period when there was no messenger. We have Prophet Isa alayhi salam, and we have 500 plus years, this is called the period of Fetra. So the people alive at the time of his Bi'tha were from those people until hearing the message. 
but it's still a gap period when there were no messengers being sent for hundreds of years. So he says, at a time in which there was no messenger, an interval period in which there was no messenger, and at a time when true knowledge was scarce and misguidance was rife among humanity, and when time was near its end and in proximity to the final hour and near the end. Whosoever obeys Allah and his messenger is guided aright. And whosoever disobeys Allah and his messenger has transgressed and trespassed the boundaries set by Allah and his Prophet ﷺ and have fallen into the abyss of deviation. He then, he then gives his wasiyah, his counsel. That's the opening of the khutbah. Very similar to what you hear today. He then says, وَأُوصِيكُمْ بِتَقْوَى اللَّهِ فَإِنَّهُ خَيْرُ مَا أَوْصَى بِهِ الْمُسْلِمِ الْمُسْلِمِ أَنْ يَحُضَّهُ عَلَى الْآخِرَةِ وَأَنْ يَأْمُرَهُ بِتَقْوَى اللَّهِ فَاحْذَرُوا مَا حَذَّرَكُمُ اللَّهُ مِنْ نَفْسِهِ وَلَا أَفْضَلْ مِنْ ذَلِكَ نَصِيحَةً وَلَا أَفْضَلْ مِنْ ذَلِكَ ذِكْرًا I counsel you to have taqwa of Allah. For the best thing which a Muslim can counsel his fellow Muslim is to urge him toward the hereafter and enjoin him to have taqwa. Be wary as Allah has warned you from himself. وَيُحَذِّرُكُمُ اللَّهُ نَفْسَ There is no better advice or remembrance than this. He continues talking about taqwa. وَإِنَّ تَقْوَى اللَّهِ لِمَنْ عَمِلَ بِهِ عَلَى وَجَدٍ وَمَخَافَةٍ مِنْ رَبِّهِ عُونُ صِدْقٍ عَلَى مَا تَبَغُونَ مِنْ أَمْرِ الْآخِرَةِ وَمَنْ يُصْلِحْ الَّذِي بَيْنَهُ وَبَيْنَ اللَّهِ مِنْ أَمْرِهِ فِي السِّرِّ وَالْعَلَانِيَةِ لَا يَنْوِي بِذَلِكَ إِلَّا وَجْهَ اللَّهِ يَكُنْ لَهُ ذِكْرًا فِي عَاجِلِ أَمْرِهِ وَذُخْرًا فِيمَا بَعْدِ الْمَوْتِ حِينَ يَفْتَقِرُ الْمَرْءُ إِلَى مَا قَدَّمْ وَمَا كَانَ مِنْ سِوَى وَمَنْ كَانَ وَمَا كَانَ مِنْ سِوَى ذَلِكَ يَوَدُّ لَوْ أَنَّ بَيْنَهُ وَبَيْنَهُ أَمَدًا بَعِيدًا وَيُحَذِّرُكُمُ اللَّهُ نَفْسَهُ وَاللَّهُ رَؤُوفٌ بِالْعِبَادِ He then says, Truly the taqwa of Allah is for the one who acts on it out of awe and fear of his Lord. It is a faithful helper for what you seek in the hereafter. Whosoever rectifies what is between him and his Lord, fulfilling his divine command publicly and privately, and only intending the, the countenance of Allah, such a person will be honored in this world, and his efforts will be a treasure store for him after death, when a person will be in need of what he has sent forward, and will wish that there be a vast distance between him and his bad deeds. And Allah warns you, of himself and truly Allah is compassionate towards the servants. Walladhi saddaqa qawlahu wa anjaza wa'adahu la khulfa li thalika fa innahu yaqulu azza wa jal ma yubaddalu al-qawlu ladayya wa ma ana bidhallamin lil-abid. Indeed, he speaks the truth and fulfills his promise and never breaks it. For he says, and he is the most exalted and sublime, Nothing can be changed before me, and I am not unjust to mankind. He then says, فَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ فِي عَاجِلِ أَمْرِكُمْ أَمْرِكُمْ وَآجِلِهِ فِي السِّرِّ وَالْعَلَانِيَةِ فَإِنَّهُ مَنْ يَتَّقِ اللَّهِ يُكَفِّرْ عَنْهُ سَيِّئَاتِهِ وَيُعْظِمْ لَهُ أَجْرًا وَمَنْ يُطْعِ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ فَقَدَ فَازَ فَوْزًا عَظِيمًا have taqwa of Allah now and in the future, publicly and privately. For whosoever is mindful of Allah, Allah will expiate his sins and magnify his reward. And whosoever has taqwa of Allah, then he has triumphed with the supreme success. So more about taqwa, more about taqwa. And then he concludes, وَإِنَّ تَقْوَ اللَّهِ جَلَّ وَعَلَىٰ تُقَى مَقْتِهِ وَتُقَى عُقُوبَتِهِ وَتُقَى سَخْطِهِ وَإِنَّ تَقْوَى اللَّهِ 
تبيض الوجوه وترضي الرب وترفع الدرجة خذوا بحظكم ولا تفرطوا في جنب الله قد علمكم الله كتابه ونهج لكم سبيله ليعلم الذين صدقوا ويعلم الكاذبين Verily the taqwa of Allah secures one against Allah's chastisement and punishment and wrath. The taqwa of Allah illuminates the faces and pleases the Lord and raises one in darajat, spiritual degrees. You must therefore take your share thereof and do not neglect the rights of Allah, for He has taught you His book and described to you His path so that he may make it known those who were truthful and those who are liars. فَأَحْسِنُوا كَمَا أَحْسَنَ اللَّهُ إِلَيْكُمْ وَعَادُوا أَعْدَاءَهُ وَجَاهَدُوا فِي اللَّهِ حَقَّ جِهَادِ هُوَ اجْتَبَاكُمْ وَسَمَّاكُمُ الْمُسْلِمِينَ لِيَهْلِكَ مَنْ هَلَكَ عَنْ بَيِّنَةٍ وَيَحْيَى مَنْ حَيَّ عَنْ بَيِّنَةٍ So do good as Allah has done good towards you, and take his enemies as your enemies and strive in the way of Allah with a true striving, for He has chosen you and named you as Muslims, so that whoever should perish will perish, and whosoever shall live will live. Now you notice something here. These are the words of the Prophet ﷺ in his counsel in the very first Jumrah. And in, in these phrases in particular, they actually echo, if we can use that as the right term, we can't use that perhaps, echo is afterwards, because these are words stated by the Prophet ﷺ that are also revealed in the Qur'an. But they're revealed, many of these are revealed later. So in Surah Anfal, for instance, we have Allah Ta'ala saying, لِيَهْلِكَ مَنْ هَلَكَ عَنْ بَيِّنَا وَيَحْيَا مَنْ حَيَّا عَنْ بَيِّنَا Surah Anfal was revealed after this. This is after Badr or during Badr. This is before Badr. But these are the words of the Prophet ﷺ. And this is a very interesting uh, point to note. Allah inspires all of His words. But those words are also revealed in the Quran later. He then says, وَلَا قُوَّةَ إِلَّا بِاللَّهِ فَأَكْثِرُوا ذِكْرَ اللَّهِ وَاعْمَلُوا لِمَا بَعْدَ الْيَوْمِ فَإِنَّهُ مَنْ يُصْلِحُ مَا بَيْنَهُ وَبَيْنَ اللَّهِ يَكْفِهِ اللَّهُ مَا بَيْنَهُ وَبَيْنَ النَّاسِ ذَلِكَ بِأَنَّ اللَّهَ يَقْضِي عَلَى النَّاسِ وَلَا يَقْضُونَ عَلَيْهِ وَيَمْلِكُ مِنَ النَّاسِ وَلَا يَمْلِكُونَ مِنْهُ اللَّهُ أَكْبَرُ وَلَا قُوَّةَ إِلَّا بِاللَّهِ الْعَظِيمِ He then concludes by saying, There is no power except by Allah. Remember Allah abundantly. And do good deeds in preparation for what lies tomorrow, after death. For whosoever rectifies what is between him and Allah, Allah will suffice him in what lies between him and other people. For it is Allah who shall judge people. And people will not rule in opposition to his judgment. He is sovereign over humanity, and they do not have independent sovereignty that can overrule him. Allahu Akbar, Allah is the greatest, and there's no movement or power except by Allah, the exalted and tremendous. So this is a timeless message. There is never going to be a time where the content of this khutbah is not relevant. You know, we have this discourse today. People say, you know, the, the teachers, the shuyukh, the khatibs, they need to be relevant to the people. You cannot get more relevant than this. What is more relevant than giving guidance on the absolute foundations of Iman and what will secure you in this life and in the hereafter? How relevant can you get? The most relevant thing for any human being is all of eternity. No one's going to care about whether the khatib talked about the next game or not and laced it into the khutbah. That's not going to benefit them in their hereafter. What benefits them is the absolute foundations. So we see here that the Prophet ﷺ gives as his very first Jumu'ah khutbah a sermon that begins by mentioning the praises of Allah Ta'ala and the remembrance of Allah Ta'ala, seeking His help, seeking His forgiveness, and seeking His guidance. So he says, نَحْمَدُهُ وَنَسْتَعِينُهُ وَنَسْتَغْفِرُهُ وَنَسْتَهْدِيهُ
right? Seeking his help, seeking his forgiveness, seeking his guidance. This is a timeless need for human beings. He also talks about the priority of Tawheed and Risala. He bears witness to La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. And this is never going to be irrelevant to the needs of the listeners. Then he reminds the Ummah of this divine message and how it and its bearer, the one who receives it, Rasulullah have come at the end of the human story on earth. So he reminds this new Ummah that this guidance from Allah Ta'ala, this messenger from Allah Ta'ala have come at the end chapter of the human story on earth. He says in the other hadith, I was sent along with the final hour like this. And he puts his two blessed fingers together. You, know, you can notice a small gap between the fingers. We're currently at 1,444 years after the hijrah. The ummah has been around a little bit longer than that. A person may say that's a long time. But relative to the rest of the human story, it's still a very short time. That's the reality. And he reminds the Sahaba, the Ummah of this, that you are the Ummah of the eschaton. You are the Ummah of Akhiruz Zaman. So it's not incorrect for any person to look around them and say, you know, we're in the end of time. That's always been true. From the time of his Bi'tha until the Day of Judgment, if a person says we are in the end of time, they're not lying. They're not inaccurate. They see the changes around them. We can say the changes in our time are uh, objectively worse than the changes 500 years ago. But we're still in the end of time. And he reminds us of this. He then says, reminding us that uprightness, istiqama, is determined by upholding a divine standard. So he communicates the standard of being a good person. And that standard is obeying Allah Ta'ala and avoiding disobedience to Allah Ta'ala. There is no other standard of morality and goodness except the standard given to us by Allah and His Messenger. That's very basic. But look around. You have lots of Muslims who have different standards of what is good and bad now. Their standard is whatever it may be, whatever they may have gotten from their professor or they gotten from TikTok or whatever, they have different standards. You know, depending on who you speak to, you would think that the source of morality is whatever some postmodern philosopher out of Europe came up with in the 1960s, defining the meanings of words and what in the, in the notion of truth and power. Their standard is not Allah وَقَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ وَالْحُسْنُ وَالْقُبْحُ شَرْعِيًا لَا عَقْلِيًا They don't have that standard. Here he communicates the divine standard. Good, bad, morals, good and evil, all of these are defined by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger. He then talks about the centrality of taqwa. He talks about taqwa in various ways. And this khutbah, if anything, centers on taqwa. So the, the, the community is founded on taqwa. The first masjid established was the masjid in Quba. What does Allah say about it? Usisa ala taqwa. It was founded on taqwa. That's the foundation. Because every single moral value in Islam goes back to that quality of taqwa. Right? We have laws. We have a great rich fiqh tradition, a lot of which details how to deal with Muslims who are messing up in their life, right? What do you do if this or that happens, right? What, do you do, what does a person do if they break their fast in a haram way? How do they do the expiation? How do they expiate for this sin, right? It details that. Uh, court cases, jinayat, criminal cases, all of that's in our fiqh tradition because Islam is meant for everybody, but it is founded on taqwa. That is the very first foundation. And for people to properly practice Islam, it has to be from within. It can't, 
we, you do need external enforcement. You do need that positive pressure in society to uh, enforce standards just from social pressure. Because not everyone has taqwa uh, at the same degree. But if you want it to be lived as a, as, a, as a reality and not just on the surface, the taqwa has to be there. And taqwa varies. Not everyone has the same level. So then he talks about, he has a message to the community, urging this new community and reminding them that the work has just begun. And this is why he says, جَاهِدُوا فِي اللَّهِ حَقَّ جِهَادِي Strive in the way of Allah with a true striving. Now the word jihad is used here. And the word jihad is actually revealed in Surah Furqan, which is a Meccan chapter. And we know that jihad was not legislated until the Medinan period. And the legislation of jihad took, it, it went through different stages that we'll look at later on inshaAllah. But the word jihad is not new to the Muslims. It's a part of the Islamic vocabulary. It's not just an abstract Arabic word. Allah mentions jihad in the Quran, in Surah Al-Furqan, when He says uh, to wage jihad against them, jihadan kabira, in a major way. But that was a jihad of da'wah. That was a jihad of, of talking with people, of reaching out to people, of responding to their doubts. This was a jihad of jihad bil karima, with speaking. This is a jihad that can take on uh, different uh, economics, a jihad of personal sacrifice, uh, a jihad of working together in a new community to build. So this is the this true striving that he's reminding them of. The, the work has just begun. There's a hard time the Muslims suffered in Mecca don't think that just because everyone's migrating to Medina, it's all going to be a peaceful utopia overnight. No, there's a process, there's a struggle involved. So after this, he tells them to prepare for meeting Allah Ta'ala and to make things right between them and their Creator. So this is the first khutbah. It's the timeless message conveyed to the new community of Muslims. The advice they received is to set out to follow the Prophet as he built this civilization of light, what we know as Al Madinatul Munawwara, the enlightened city. It's not an accident that the name for the city is the city. Al Madina literally means the city. It is the city with a capital C, a representation of the highest human ideal as being an Abdullah or Amatullah, a servant of God, male or female. So these counsels he gives will never grow old. They will never grow irrelevant. We're never going to reach a stage in our Islamic development, our spiritual development, where we no longer need these counsels, where they no longer apply. Is, is there ever going to be a time where we don't need to be reminded we need to be mindful of our relationship with Allah and make things right. And when we mess up, we need to seek forgiveness and seek Allah's help. And we have to work on that inside so that Islam is not just on our tongues, but it's also in our hearts and our limbs. That's timeless advice. So all goodness is found in following this khutbah, this first khutbah. All goodness for us as individuals, as families, as societies is in these basic foundations outlined in this khutbah, the very first khutbah of the Prophet And there's not a single crisis, a single problem that we have as individual Muslims or families or communities, except that those problems go back to neglecting and falling short of these ideals in this very first khutbah. So this is the foundation. And we know that the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ is in his words, in his actions, and in his approvals. You have three things together that make up the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, right? So when he's giving this khutbah, he is verbalizing the sunnah of life itself, the sunnah way of living, the 
internal spiritual consciousness you have to have or you have to strive for as you live your life, no matter what role you play in society. So he's building the society, and this is the first advice he gives. So next week, inshallah, we will look at his entry into Medina proper and the selection of where he's going to stay and the very first community project that uh, starts in the city of the Prophet which we know is the construction of the masjid. And we'll talk a little bit about the history of the masjid and the construction process and some of the other khasais that relate to that as we go through the seerah bi-ithnillahi ta'ala. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallama ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Where's your three questions? <laughs> Nothing today. Nothing today? Uh, are we now like into the stage where the, the, the companions have to show publicly the love and the, and the respect of Prophet as views? Like it wasn't in the, in the Meccan period because of like, you know, the being Salati uh, and being like being. Yeah. The the, is that now when you start seeing it? Yeah, we can say that the seerah of the Prophet is as much about the companions as it is about the Prophet It is the seerah of the Prophet but his life is so intertwined with that of his family, his wives, and his ashab that as we learn about him, we're also learning about them. So in learning about them, we learn about their stories. What were they like before Islam? How did they convert? What struggles did they go through? What were their talents? What sacrifices did they make? What were their interactions like with the Prophet ﷺ? How did they show adab and reverence to him ﷺ? How did they leave this world? And in what state did they leave this world? There are many of them who left this world during his physical lifetime. And there are others who passed away shortly after his passing. And there are those who lived for a very long time after him. We, we learn about them. And it is from studying the seerah that you come to grow in knowledge and love for the Sahaba as well. Because our teachers remind us uh, time and again that the seerah is a blueprint for every possible scenario you can find playing out within the Ummah. So if you look at where we are today, 1444, the condition of the Ummah, problems, challenges, you're going to find in the Seerah examples that show you how to respond appropriately. And Imam Abdul Wahhab al-Sha'arani, rahimahullah, he mentions something very profound. He mentions in Al-Uhud al-Muhammadiyah that the Sahaba themselves were like archetypes, and mudaj archetypes of human patterns for people within the Ummah. You have the Abu Hurairas of the Ummah who are very eager to memorize and collect and record and preserve and transmit. You have the Abu Dharr al-Ghifaris, who are very devoted and pious, but they, they, they like to isolate themselves a little bit and be away from the limelight. You have the Umars. You have the Uthmans. You have the people on the sidelines that we don't really know a lot about. And you even have the drunkards, those who struggled with addictions and the like. So every possible scenario or every personality type within the Sahaba, you're going to find within the Ummah. And this is useful because who are you dealing with? Are you dealing with an Umari archetype, an Uthmani archetype, an Alawi archetype? Are you dealing with a Bedouin archetype? You know, of the Bedouins from the Wufud, the delegations that embrace Islam. Are you dealing with a type who 
might have been out there shouting outside of the house without any adab until they're taught. So learning about the Sahaba is found within learning about the seerah. And we will be looking at their lives. And one of the great lessons, I think, from the Sahaba is, and I say this as a convert, uh, the Sahaba are converts. They're converts. But we don't call them converts. You know, when a person converts to Islam, they're not, we don't call them permanently converts as if they're forever new Muslims. Look at how the Prophet ﷺ is addressing this community of new Muslims. He's addressing them with fundamental principles, important principles that everyone needs to hear. He's presenting Islam as it is to them, as they are, as new Muslims, because a good number of Ahlul Medina were relatively new Muslims. They're not like the Muhajirun, who have been Muslim for some years, right? So we don't call them converts, we call them the first generation of Muslims. Uh, and within Western Muslim discourse, you have this, you have people using the term convert, and you have people using the term revert. And it's my opinion that people who use the word revert should be forced to do a thousand push-ups and never use the word again, because it's bad English and it's bad theology. It's, it's not even the right word to use. And sometimes converts get pigeonholed as the perpetual new Muslim, as the perpetual outsider who's coming in. And uh, I heard one person recently suggest uh, replacing the word convert altogether and instead using the term first generation Muslim. I really like that. And you see the Prophet is addressing a bunch of converts, but they're first generation Muslims. All of our Islam is transmitted from these converts. Like, I mean, you have exceptions here. I mean, you have people who, well, not really exceptions. Even they embrace Islam formally as taklif, right? You have people in the Sahaba who don't have a history of shirk. But we still call them converts in a sense because conversion is going from uh, in a, a formal embrace of Islam as a belief as well as a taklif, moral responsibility. Uh, and that's the reason why we don't use the word revert, right? Revert is bad English because revert is actually a verb. You don't call someone a verb. You call them a noun. Uh, and likewise, it's bad theology because reverting implies that they were there before, but they left it. If it's a conscious leaving of something and a conscious return, what do you call that person who leaves Islam consciously? You call them a murtad. You call them an apostate. The murtad has a different hukum to the one who embraces Islam without ever having been a Muslim before. So it's bad theology. It's, it's, it's conflating fitrah with Islam as a taklif, as a moral responsibility, as because you have Islam as a haqiqa shar'iyya, right? You have haqiqa lughawiyya and haqiqa shar'iyya. As a haqiqa shar'iyya, Islam is the five pillars, the six pillars of iman, it's the willful embrace of that. So when a person is reverting, that is a person who formally held Islam in that definition and purposely left it and then went back. So we don't call people who embrace Islam as brand new Muslims reverts. It's bad English, bad theology. It's just one of those things. You know, people have pet peeves. Like, I don't like the word triggered. You know, people say, that triggers me. But I will say this triggers me. <laughs> it triggers me because it gives me images of people who are confused, using bad English and bad theology. And for some reason, people who use the term revert, not all, but a good amount of them, they want to correct you if you say the word convert. They'll say, no, brother, it is not convert. It is revert because everyone's born Muslim. Okay. Does that mean that every single child is born as a Muslim? They're born praying the five prayers, the fasting in Ramadan. They all said shahada as infants. Because this is the Islam we're talking about here. Not the Islam of your natural state that applies to the trees and to the stones and to the animals and even to disbelievers. 
right? Everything submits to Allah Ta'ala. But that kafir who has not taken shahada, his organs submit to Allah Ta'ala. We don't call him a Muslim because he's not Muslim hukman, right? Anyhow, I'm getting into the ranting territory. I'll stop now. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen.